is the storied outdoors a podcast somewhere between lewis and tolkien and lewis and clark finding clarity in the stories we tell and the adventures that shape us Welcome to the Storied Outdoors. My name is Brad Hill, and I'm so glad you have decided to join us on this adventure, uh, telling these stories and sharing these adventures on the Storied Outdoors. We are uh, we've been so encouraged by messages and emails, and uh, especially those that have taken time to leave reviews and ratings. Thank you so much for your help. Uh, if you want to help us to grow this podcast into see more people find out about it then leaving a written review and a rating is the best way you can do that to the best of my knowledge from what i understand from all the analytics and all the things that help you grow a podcast those are a big way that you can help us um the really the best way you can help us is to you know you hear one of these episodes you go man my friend so and so would really enjoy this or would benefit by this and you just copying the link to this episode and sending it to your friend and hoping that that friend enjoys it and they send it to someone else we just desire to just input some goodness into the world of podcasts some goodness into the world some stories and some honesty and share life and our adventures with you and we hope that you do the same thing um, we are excited about today's episode. Uh, it's an essay written by James Whitmer. James was one of the early, early guests on the Storied Outdoors. In fact, I think he was in season one. Um, James is um, uh, he's the editor for the Story Warren and an author himself. He's written several children's books. All those links and uh, things that you would like to know more about James will be in the show notes and on the website at thestoriedoutdoors.com. So, without further ado, here's James Whitmer's essay, Seagull Watcher. It is midsummer, and I'm sitting very still, hoping that by concentration I can engrave this moment in memory. It is a moment of peace. I'm on Beach 9 at Presque Isle State Park, Lake Erie, Pennsylvania. My family are the only people in sight. We've escaped ordinary life for the weekend, and I want my memory on this vacation to be more than a blur. I tell myself that if I really fully inhabit this bit of time and place, it will be mine to carry with me. After all, C.S. Lewis wrote, the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Or as Mary Oliver humbly put in her poem 133, The Summer Day, I don't know exactly what prayer is. I don't know how to pay attention. So I put all my attention into my senses. The sky is much bigger than it used to be, stretching uninterrupted in front of me, over the water as far as I can see in three directions. The sky is clear, but such a bleached pale blue that it seems to have faded with age. In a sky like that, the sun doesn't even seem bright. It's just too white to look at. 
Right now, the white sun is sliding down the afternoon sky toward the sharp, curved line of the horizon. And out there, at the edge of the world, the tops of the waves are a royal blue, and the shadows in the troughs are navy, or even midnight. Somewhat nearer, the color turns sullen, a dark chalkboard gray that highlights the curling white edges of the waves. Nearer still are the breakwaters. Fifty-yard-long piles of granite, maybe a hundred yards apart and a hundred yards from the shore. They stretch along the coast from left to right as if a dotted line on a map manifested itself in real life. They were built in 1992 by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in their campaign against the driving wind and waves that constantly reshape this peninsula. We don't know what the Erie people, from whom Lake Erie is named, called this glacially deposited arm of land, but the French explorers named it Presqu'île. In the 1920s, it meant literally almost an island. The problem is, it's been an actual island four times since then. The lake, so gentle and serene at this moment, is the size of an inland sea and given to violent tempers. In stormy moods, it tears away at the sandy coast, dragging those glacial deposits out to sea, dumping them further north and further east. The stone breakwaters protect this restored shoreline from the full force of the waves, moderating elemental forces so that over four million people like me can drive out from the mainland every year. Right now, I'm soaking in beauty that the grand forces of nature got bored with back in 1819. It's not just the tourists who benefit, either. Presque Isle is home to 89 species of dragonflies and damselflies, 35 different butterflies, 48 kinds of mammals, 13 types of amphibians, 19 reptile species, and 318 birds, of which 45 are listed as endangered or threatened. This is an example of an indigenous American philosophy the author and botany PhD Robin Wall Kimmer describes as reciprocity. To phrase one section of her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, you could say that a posture of reciprocity refuses to grind creation underfoot. It does not accept things as poet Gerard Manley Hopkins described them. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And where's man's smudge and shares man's smell, the soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. Nor does it slink away from created world, tails between legs and try to avoid contact. Reciprocity takes off its shoes. It learns to feel the soil, and it cares for a place in ways that allow the place to care for us in return. Like the way the beach is caring for me right now. Inside the lines of breakwaters, the water is distinctly green and translucent, 
and waves curl into a break on the sand. I focus on the sound of the surf, steady, sibilant, the smooth rhythm of our planet's heartbeat. It's the cliched song played by every single seaside everywhere, but it seems magical here, 273 miles from the nearest ocean. There is a strong breeze sweeping across the lake and up the sand to where I'm sitting. And thanks to the sound of the waves, I half expected to smell a salty brine. Instead, it's odorless and too cold to be quite comfortable. But that's okay too, because the afternoon heat is still a bit much, and the combined sensation is a quiet, wavering thrill like facing a blazing fire on a cold night. The soft sand beneath me has compacted under my weight, and my seat is going numb. I relocate a couple of feet to the side, and smoothing the sand draws my attention to the shimmering, flickering light around me. Here on Beach 9, I'm doing something else you can't usually do by the seaside. I'm sitting on a sand dune underneath a group of cottonwood trees. Their thousands of leaves are small, spade-shaped, with jaggy tooth edges and a leathery texture. They flutter endlessly in the steady sea breeze, not whispering together so much as rattling, and it's a sound somehow more quiet than silence. On my right, just out of reach, a fleshy root has snaked out from under the sand and lays in the twinkling sunlight. It's a cottonwood root, testament to the stabilizing, homemaking role that these native trees play here. Cottonwoods see themselves right in the sand, growing quickly despite the free-draining, low-nutrient environment. Their leafy crowns break the wind from the inland neighbors and their roots buttress the sand dunes that are stitched so delicately together by the roots of grass and milkweed. I turn to look inland, where small shrubs have sprouted in the ground, stabilized and fertilized by these pioneer plants. The shrubs hold their gnarled and twisty twigs stubbornly still against the wind, standing only a little taller than the grass stems that sway around them. Glistening green and blue dragonflies navigate light brush pilots along the edges where the light meets the shadow. Along the crest of the dunes, a flock of chipping sparrows pluck grass seeds. They skitter along the sand and crowd into the lower branches of the shrubbery, moving like a crowd of preteens in a department store. Despite all the movement, they are so well camouflaged that I would have missed them if it were not for the frequent calling. Looking back across the water, I see a foursome of coumarins that have landed on the nearest breakwater. They are standing on the rocks with their wings spread, dripping dry like fleshy, laundered scarecrows in the sun. I've been told these fish-catching waterfowl must drip dry after diving because their feathers lack the waterproof oils used by ducks. This makes them less buoyant 
which makes them better divers and more deadly fishermen. It also makes them look silly, silhouetted with their long, snaky necks twisting around and their wings rigidly cruciform. This is one of the things I love about Presque Isle. With seven distinct ecological zones in such a small place, I can often move between different worlds just by turning my head. The watery world of the cumarants and the grassland ground of the chipping sparrows are within eye shot, but it's not likely either flock will ever see each other. Just over the dunes, not much further from where I sit than the breakwaters, is yet another kind of habitat with white pines, oaks, and other forest trees. There is a lull in the sea breeze, and the ecstatic song of a catbird reaches me from those trees. I climb by stages to my feet and stretch. Rested for a moment, I feel a sudden restlessness. It's time for some bird watching. There are at least two kinds of bird watching communing and collecting. Collecting birds usually takes keeping a list. Can mean spotting a species for the first time that season or the first time in that spot or both together. It can mean finding as many different birds as possible in one day or one trail or without moving from one spot. Sometimes it means watching a bird you've never seen before in real life or even more rarely discovering a bird that you never knew existed at all. Then you watch and listen with your full attention, building a mental description of its shape, its color, size, and behavior. You refer to your field guide of choice and often learn that you failed to notice the most distinguishing characteristics. Are the legs black or pinkish? Where the crown of the head and the nape of the neck different colors or was at the angle of the light? If you're lucky enough to have the time, you check and double check until you've answered all the questions and you end the day by knowing something about the world that can't be learned except by observation and experience. I remember vividly my first meeting with an unknown bird. I was about junior high age, sitting with some homework in front of my bedroom window. I was staring at the maple tree outside, trying to avoid making eye contact with the textbook, when a medium-sized bird appeared swaying among the leaves. I thought for an instant that it was a robin, but it was obviously not a robin. It was a little shorter, a, a little plumper, and much blacker. Its sides were a rusty red, but its chest was black, and its belly was white. I had never seen or heard such a thing, and I went running for my dad's bird guide. It took me a little while in a lot of turning of pages, but I eventually identified my visitor as a male rufous-sided townie. By the way, the species name had since been officially changed from Rufus-sided to Eastern Townie. What can I say? The weird and improbable names are part of the fun when you're bird collecting. 
For me, Presque Isle had been a wonderful place to collect birds. Here I've seen two or three birds that I knew only by reputation, and at least one species like that townie I'd never heard of. Still, I keep collecting simple. Just one list of all the birds I see in Erie, Pennsylvania each year. I put an exclamation mark next to the names of new acquaintances. Collecting bird sightings is a high. It's exploring and treasure hunting and an assurance that the world has not lost its wonder. That's why people will drive or even fly hundreds of miles to see a rare bird. Why they schedule vacations during unpleasant weather to lonely places visited by migratory flocks. It's why I lug binoculars, the Kaufman Field Guide to Birds of North America, my favorite, a journal and a pencil just to walk a path between the cottonwood dunes and a stand of white pines. But it's not the only way to birdwatch. There's also communing. Communing doesn't require rare birds, it just needs a bird and enough time to pay attention which is the reason it can take me 45 minutes to walk a hundred yards down this path. To me, it means sharing a space, watching and listening to the same few birds until I feel like I know something about their personalities, or at least how their days are going. It helps to separate me from the anxiety of my own life and makes me feel like I'm in good company. As my favorite Jewish teacher said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. As I descend towards the sandy path, the sea breeze is cut off by the cottonwood dunes behind me, and the sun becomes a welcome baking warmth on my shoulders. In front of me, the path runs left and right, with white pines and scrubby growth spreading along the opposite side. The catbird burbles again somewhere to the left, so I turn that way. My steps are slow, I drag my sandal toes through the hot sand, walking with my head tilted back, looking from branch to branch and bush to bush. Crows clamor somewhere beyond the tree line. Maybe they found an owl to protest, or maybe they just want to hear themselves yell. I idle on a few more steps, disturbing a sand-colored grasshopper who flashes the undersides of his wings as he takes flight, buzzing away in a flurry of pale lemon. A long, searching pause reveals no birds, so, down the path I shuffle. From somewhere in the trees comes a clear call. Sweet, 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 wheat a wheat. Thanks to a biologist on Instagram, I recognize the call of a Presque Isle's most numerous warbler, accurately but unimaginatively named the yellow warbler. The bird sounds close, so I wait. The sun feels really hot now, so I take a few steps backward into the shade of the cottonwoods, and I wait some more. 
There, a spot of greenish yellow flutters in a honeysuckle bush. I pop the lens covers off my binoculars, fumble with my glasses, and find the warbler is hopelessly out of focus. Twisting the binocular dial makes things worse. A little worse, a little better, then mostly better. Now I can see clearly that the warbler has disappeared. I lower the binoculars and I squint. There, near the bottom of the bush, the warbler scoots along a branch, picking at bugs too small to see. I raise the binoculars. He's gone. Today is not, it seems, a day I'll get to admire his bright black eye or the rusty racing stripes on his yellow breast. I cap the binoculars and take another step backward so I can sit on the slope of the sand dune. The yellow warbler continues to appear and disappear, now picking along this branch, now gone again, now in another bush. He seems to be aware of me, not terrified, but shy, and uncomforted by my stillness. For a while, he perseveres, and we share this small section of the path, just the two of us. Finally, he disappears for the last time. But my seat is warm and the air is still, so I stay where I am thinking about this idea of birding as communing. Sometimes it takes a lot of effort to appreciate the common sights. Other times they meet us in uncommon ways. In 2021, I met a ring-billed gull. Now, if you're familiar with North American gulls, that will sound a lot like a joke. Almost anywhere you go, including Presque Isle, ring-billed gulls are the most common gull you'll see. They congregate around lakes, rivers, harbors, even parking lots. It makes more sense to talk about being mobbed by a gang of ring-billed gulls than to say you met one. But I did, although I don't think he noticed. The years of the COVID-19 pandemic brought wrenching changes for many people. For some of us, the changes were permanent, and sweeping changes, good or bad, bring grief with them. Then, in August 2021, I experienced an extra loss. A friend of friends whose writing and pastoral ministry had been a strong and strengthening influence in my life died unexpectedly in a car crash. A few days later, I found myself on the beach at Presque Isle, watching the waves come in one after the other, and wondering what to do with all the grief that I felt. As I sat on the sand, absorbing lake water through my swim trunks, a single ring-billed gull landed nearby and waded knee-deep into the waves. I don't know what he was doing, I'm not sure he knew what he was doing. But he pottered back and forth, looking out over the lake, scurrying up onto the dry sand and then moseying back down into the water. As I watched this gull placidly living his life, I realized something. My God loves this gull. Sure, God loves all gulls. 
all birds, and all creation. But he loves this goal, and he gave it a story, even though no person but God himself will ever bear witness to it. And I couldn't help thinking that if that's true, then the wave after waves of grief, the unbearably unanswered questions, they all carry in their wake some promise of goodness. In that moment, my unspoken prayer could have been the cry written by the great American songwriter, Rich Mullins. O sparrow watcher, lover of the flowers, heavenly father, keeper of the stars, we come now with hunger, we come now with thirst. Clothe us in your glory, feed us on your word. Jesus, our brother, dresser of the fields, greeter of the morning who keeps the water still. Judge between the nations, turn our hearts from wrong. We join all creation and pray your kingdom come. And with that solitary ring bell goal came the answer that even though we enter traverse and depart this world alone, we are not forsaken. We hope you've enjoyed this essay from our friend James Whitmer. We're so thankful for his friendship and willingness to share his story with us so that we can share it with you. Um, we hope maybe there's a burger in your life that would appreciate this essay. We hope you take time to to, to copy the link to this podcast and share it with those that you know would enjoy it. That's the best way to help us. We hope you've enjoyed it. We certainly have enjoyed those reflections um, from James and, uh, and this summer series has been so much fun to hear the stories of others. Um, if you want to see uh, photos from James's essay or other essays and, and see who these people are, you can go to thestoriedoutdoors.com and you can go to the tab essays and you can see all of our essays and any accompanying videos or photos of those essays and quotes and uh, extra links and things to connect with these folks, these writers, and we would love for you to do that. So there's always more. Um, more content there on the storied outdoors brian both brian and me are just we're just thankful that you guys listen that you guys engage we hope you these stories encourage you as we say to write your own stories to share your own adventures in the place we love to call the storied outdoors 